Well, good morning, Freedom. Welcome to the first day of spring break. Yes, I know those of you who are teachers are super excited uh, that, that this is now spring break. But anyway, I want to welcome you. I want to welcome those of you that are joining us online. And today is a unique day. Today we end our series called One Story, where we've been looking at the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, trying to discover what is God's overarching story so that we can understand, have a greater understanding of those individual stories found in the books of the Bible. So today is unique in the fact that at the very beginning of this series, we asked you to submit your questions. So today, that's what we're doing. We're answering the questions that you've submitted. So today's going to be a little bit different. Normally what we do is we take a text and we dig into the text and study that text. Today we're going to look at multiple texts and multiple passages of scripture in order to answer the questions that you guys have submitted. And so the whole purpose of this series is for us to gain a greater understanding of scripture, for us to understand God's word and to, and to be able to apply it to our lives. And so today, uh, as we look at these different, different questions, um, I want to give a disclaimer. Because the reality is that I have no doubt that there are going to be some of the answers that I may give that you may disagree with. That's okay. Thank you. It is okay. It is okay for us to disagree. There are several things that we can disagree on theologically, that we can disagree on biblically. Now, there are certain things we must agree on. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But Acts 15, we see Paul and Barnabas disagreeing on the application of a biblical principle. And it didn't cause them to break fellowship. It didn't cause them to be, to, to be enemies. It just meant that they disagreed on that biblical principle. Acts 17, the Jerusalem Council was established because of a disagreement in doctrine. And so they came together and they had this disagreement and they talked about it and they studied it and they, they discussed it. So here's what I want us to do. Whoops, that's not what I want us to do. I, there we go. Now this, this is important. Forget it. Here we go. Here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to tell you. Maybe we can just see it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to understand, and I want to use a quote from a man named Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was, a, uh, was an understudy of Martin Luther. And Philip Melanchthon said this. He said, in the essentials, we as Christians must have unity. In the non-essentials, we must have liberty. And in all things, we must have charity. What does that mean? That means that there are essential doctrines that you and I need to be unified on. There, is, there, there are essential doctrines that we have to be united on. What are those essential doctrines? How we are saved. Salvation. That we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We've got to be unified on that. We can't say, well, you know what? Yeah, you can be saved by works. No. No, you can't. We need to be unified on the Trinitarian nature of God, that He is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We need to be unified on the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man and that He rose again from the grave. You can't deny the resurrection and be in good fellowship as, as believers. So we need to be unified on those things. We need to be unified on the authority of Scripture, that the Word of God has authority for our lives, that it is God's Word written to us. We need to have unity on those things but there are non-essentials there are those secondary and tertiary doctrines 
that you and I can disagree on. And we can disagree on those things without being disagreeable. Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. Good, because we're going to need that probably later on today. Um, but uh, those non-essentials, what are those, those non-essentials, those things that we can disagree on? Things like, things like how and when to conduct the Lord's Supper. We at Freedom, we typically have the Lord's Supper every other week. There are some churches that do it quarterly, some churches that do it weekly, some churches that do it monthly. And that's okay. We can disagree on that, right? We can disagree on things like that. We can disagree on election, predestination, church governance. We can disagree on those things. We can disagree on spiritual gifts. Some of you may be continuationists. Some of you may be cessationists. And it's okay. We can disagree on those types of things. We can disagree on eschatology. What is eschatology, you ask? In times. We can disagree on how it all unfolds. We can disagree on the various do's and don'ts found in the Bible. And that's okay. So in the essentials, we need to have unity. And there's very few essentials. In the non-essentials, we need to have liberty. And in all things, we need to have charity. In other words, our differences should not destroy the fellowship that we have with one another. Jesus, in fact, said, he said, I give you a new commandment. And that commandment is to love one another. So in this, we need to love one another within our differences. Just as I have loved you, Jesus said, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. So with that said, let's dive into some of your questions. The first question we're going to talk about is this. Why did God write the Bible? And how do we know that the Bible is true? Why did God write the Bible? Why do we have this book that we call the Bible? Well, generally speaking, God wrote this book to, to give us a historical record of his interaction with man. He also wanted to give us a, 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 a picture of himself to teach us his will, to show us how to live God-centered lives. Ultimately, what the Bible reveals is God's plan of redemption for mankind, how God set in place this, this, this mission to redeem us, this plan to redeem us. From the very beginning, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God put in motion a plan that he had orchestrated from the beginning of time in order to redeem us. But specifically, God gave us the Bible to reveal to us Jesus Christ. If you want to know why did God give us the Bible in one sentence, he gave us to reveal Jesus. In fact, Jesus said this. He said in, in John 5, he said, you search the scriptures. Why? Because you want to find in them eternal life. But then Jesus says this. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness of me. In other words, what Jesus is saying, that all the scriptures, every bit of it, are bearing witness of him. He also said, John said in John 20, verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then Jesus said in, uh, in Luke 24, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all of the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So all of the Bible, every bit of it, is designed to point us and to reveal to us who Jesus is. Now, here's what, I want us to, here's what I want you to grasp. My goal today, we're going to go through a lot of scripture. You're not going to be on the screens. Write them down. Because my goal is not to give you the words on the screen, but rather that you would write them down and go study the Bible for yourself. To go dig into these passages of scripture on your own. 
And so don't just take my word for it. Be like the Bereans and study it for yourself and study the, God's word. So how do we, so, the, the, so we, we know what the purpose, why God wrote the Bible to reveal to us Jesus Christ, but how do we know that the Bible is true? Have you ever thought about that? That was a part two of this question. How do we know that the Bible is true? I think in order to answer that, we need to actually ask a broader question. And that is, how do we know if anything is true? Right? We have to use the same criteria for God's word that we would use for anything else to prove whether or not it is true. We test the claims of truth based on what? Observation, experimentation, eyewitnesses, examination, scientific evidence. We also base the test of claims of truth through rational, logical consistency, right? Contradictory claims cannot be equally true. I can't say that the sky is blue and the sky is red and they both be true. They, one is true or neither is true, but they both can't be true. Well, the same, we would take those same principles and apply them to God's word. So based on that criteria, how do we know, what are some proofs that we have that the Bible is true? Let's talk about documentation. The Bible has more original manuscripts than any other document in antiquity. Let me just give you one example. I'll give you two examples, actually. So the book of Isaiah. Prior to the, uh, the Qumran scrolls that were found in the caves in the Qumran area uh, of Israel, prior to that, we had lots and lots of pieces of Isaiah. And we put those pieces together to come up with the book of Isaiah. And, and yet, when we found the Qumran manuscripts, the entire book of Isaiah was intact. All 66 books were intact and complete. And they get this, they matched all of the previous sections that we had. Think about that. That's amazing to think that we had every we had all different sections of Isaiah, but we never we didn't have the entirety of Isaiah. And yet, when they were found in the Qumran caves, it matched all the sections that we had of Isaiah. But that's not that's not it when it comes to documentation. Think about Plato and his writings. Anybody want to guess how many original manuscripts we have of of Plato? Nobody wants to guess. That's fine. I'll give it to you. Seven. Seven copies of Plato's original manuscripts. Now, would you all agree with me that Plato wrote what he wrote? Based on seven manuscripts. Guess how many New Testament manuscripts we have in the Greek language? 6,000. And when you add all the other languages, we have over 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Not including the Old Testament, just the New Testament. And so we look at documentation, we say, okay, the documentation adds up that the Bible is true. But not only that, we have archaeology and, and the findings that have been found in archaeology. The ev evacuation sites and the artifacts have proven that the events, the people, the places mentioned in the Bible really did exist. They really did exist, including the Hittite people and including the city of Jericho whose walls fell down. And we see through archaeological digs, we see the fallen walls of Jericho. 
So we have archaeological proof. We also have eyewitness accounts. Think about just the Gospels. All four Gospels give, give different or multiple points of view of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And in all the cases of the Gospels, they were written within the lifetime of those that witnessed it. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, listen, if you don't believe what we're saying about the resurrection, just go ask the witnesses. There's 500 of them, and most of them are still alive. And so we know through the eyewitness accounts that the Bible is true. In addition to that, we know about the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus is a proven historical fact. Not biblically, but through historical Jewish documents of his day. We know that there was a man named Jesus who claimed to be a Messiah, who was crucified by the Romans, who was put into an empty grave, and who there was claims of his resurrection. We know that he performed miracles and all these. We know all of this, not just through the biblical accounts, but through historical documents written by non-Christian Jews. So we have it through that. We also have the fulfillment of prophecy. The number of prophecies that have been fulfilled in, in the Old Testament are miraculous. Thousands of times the Old Testament writers would, would, would predict future events that would happen exactly as they predicted them. How on earth could all of those things happen if it weren't for the fact that God had inspired human writers to write those things? But then we also have just the redeemed lives, the fact that you and I are here, and because of our study of God's Word and the truth found in God's Word, our lives have been transformed. And there's irrefutable evidence of that over and over and over again. So how was the Bible written? The Lord inspired men to write through the Holy Spirit, and those men wrote exactly what God told them to write. Which is why we have in, in the Bible the trustworthy, inerrant word of God. It is infallible. We can trust our very lives with this word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture from Genesis to Revelation is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 2, 21, Peter says this, For no prophecy, in other words, nothing in the Bible, nothing that was written, was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the final question on this that was part of the Bible is, why is it not written in a chronological order? Have you ever thought about that? Like, you start reading Bible and you're like, oh man, it feels like it jumps around. Well, it does. It's not written in chronological order. Rather, the Bible is written or put together, the canon that we have, is by the type of literature. So what does that mean? That means that Genesis through Esther is historical. You can read it chronologically. Job through Song of Solomon is poetry. And it reflects back through that chronological period of time. And then Isaiah through Malachi is prophecy. And it also fits back into the chronological period of the Bible. So, so it's written by type. So go to the New Testament. Matthew through Acts is historical. You can read it chronologically. Romans through Jude was, were letters written to churches and to individuals, and they fit somewhere within the book of Acts. 
And then Revelation was apocalyptic literature. And so those, those, are, those are how we know the Bible is true. Those, why it's written the way that it's written and, and the proof of how it was written. So the next question that was asked, and this is a good one. Did God create any other people besides Adam and Eve? Now, there's no indication in the Bible that he did. In fact, Genesis 2 uh, says, and, and, and other New Testament texts argue that, that, that Adam and Eve were the only, uh, only humans that God created. So let's look at Genesis 2 real quick. Genesis 2, verse 7, says this. And then the Lord God formed, um, formed the man, not men, but the man out of dust of the ground and breathed nostrils into his life, and the man became a living creature. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So notice God is saying the man, not the men. In other words, he's referencing Adam, the one man. And then you go to Genesis 2. So the Lord, verse 21 through 22. And then the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he, the man, slept, God took out one of his ribs, closed it up. And, and from that rib, God, the Lord God that had taken from the man, he made into a woman. So again, the singular is used here. The woman and brought her to the man. The New Testament also refers to Adam and Eve. 1 Timothy 2 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For, all, for, as, in all, for as in Adam all die, so also in, all, in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Now, why do, we ask, why do people ask if God created more than one, one group of people? Well, the, it really comes down to two things. How did Cain get a wife? Right? You read in Scripture, Cain got a wife, so how did that happen? I know some of you are already thinking, this is, this is gross, but we're going to talk about it. And then the origin of different races. So how did Cain get a wife? Let's talk about that. Genesis 5, verse 4, says that Adam and Eve had many more sons and daughters. So what does that mean? That means that because Adam and Eve were the only human beings, the first and only human beings that God created, then their children had no choice but to intermarry. That means that Cain's wife would have been his sister or a niece or something along those lines. Same is true of Noah and his descendants after the flood. Noah and his descendants had to intermarry. In fact, Genesis 20 verse 12 says that Abraham married his half-sister, Sarah. Now, I know you're thinking, that's disgusting. I ain't marrying my brother or my sister. Now keep in mind, here's what I want you to keep in mind. Adam and Eve were perfectly created and designed by God. Their DNA lacked any genetic defects, which enabled their children to intermarry without the deformities that we would see today. Does that make sense? This is why they were able to do that. It wasn't, it wasn't until Moses, the time of Moses, think about this, it wasn't until the time of Moses that God forbid intermarriage. And at the time of Moses, the, the, the Egyptians were, and the pharaohs in particular, would, 
would, um, they practice intermarriage significantly in order to keep the purity of, of the Pharaoh's line because they felt like and they thought that Pharaohs were gods. But there's also historical documents that show over and over again the deformities and the, and the, the issues created by that intermarriage in Egypt. And so up until that point, up until the time of Moses, the human genetic code, or by the time of Moses, the human genetic code had become increasingly damaged by sin. And in the Tower of Babel, when God dispersed the people, that, that, those recessive genes became more and more amplified, which, which created the deformities that happened through intermarriage. Plus, by that time, there were enough people that had made intermarriage unnecessary. So then the question goes, okay, what about the origins of different races? Here's what I need you to understand. There is only one race. And it is the human race. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. Yes, there are a variety of skin tones and a variety of physical features. And often those are related around geographical locations and ethnicities. But ge- genetic research, get this is amazing. I, as I was saying, this genetic research shows that human beings are 99.9% genetically identical. 99.9% genetically identical. Why is that? Because we all descend from Adam and Eve. Now, the question then comes, okay, why different skin colors, right? Why do we have different tones of skin? Why do we have different physical features? Well, there's a lot of different ideas about that, but more than likely, Adam and Eve had, because they had perfect DNA, they had the genetic potential to produce offspring of a variety of different colors, black, white, brown, you name it. And Noah and his family apparently had the same thing, as the scripture talks about Noah's, one of Noah's sons, his wife was of darker skin. But then, at the Tower of Babel, when God dispersed people into various languages and nations, again, those recessive genes were reinforced within that particular population. And that's why when you look at Asian countries and and African countries and and various countries in Europe, you see these similarities of people based on their, their genetic makeup. And so the reality is whatever caused the different skin colors, we don't know exactly. But here's what we do know. And I like to focus on what we do know and not what we don't know. What we do know is that we are all the same race, the human race. We were all created by the same God. We were all created for the same purpose, and that is to glorify Him. Now, this is a question that comes up is, does the Bible say anything about interracial marriage? Yes. We're all one race. (laughs) So there's really not interracial marriage. Now, there may be international marriage, different nations marrying. In fact, Moses married a Cushite woman who would have been from Ethiopia, which meant her skin color would have been dark, black, yes. And in Numbers, uh, I can't remember which number, but in Numbers, read it for your whole self, read it for sure, you'll find it. But in Numbers, 
uh, Moses' siblings, Miriam and Aaron, were chastised by God for making fun and, and, and for, um, for criticizing Moses' marriage. In, in, in Colossians 3, God makes it very clear from his perspective that you and I are all one in Christ. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, that's the passage that's often used for saying no to, to, uh, to international marriages. Because we're not going to call them interracial, but international marriages. And what that scripture says is that we, as Christians, we're not to be, we are to be unequally yoked. We're not to be unequally yoked. That has nothing to do with nationality or skin color or anything like that. That has to do with Christians not marrying non-Christians, period. So yes, God frowns on racism and racist, but he does not frown on marriages between different people groups. So, let's move on to the next question. Why was Satan allowed to survive when God could have stopped him? The Bible doesn't tell us. We have no idea. We can move on to the next question. But I do want to, I do want to, think, I do want to focus on a few things we do know. We do know that God knows everything. We do know that God's ways are different and, and, and they're not our ways. They're higher and greater. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 tells us that. We do know that God's plan of salvation was ordained from eternity past. Before creation, God had ordained our redemption. Revelation 13, 8 tells us that. And we do know that God's overall plan will not be stopped. Regardless of what Satan does, God is sovereign and is, is able to use the devil's evil schemes to accomplish his holy plan. Those are things we do know, so we'll, we'll leave it at that. Next question was, why did God pick the land of Canaan to be the promised land? Now, I don't know if you know much about the land of Canaan, but it is a desert. You ever thought about that? Like, why did God pick a desert for his people? Why did he have them leave the land of Egypt, which was lush and, and, and had, the, had the Nile flowing through it to, to enable crops to grow? Why did he have them leave Mesopotamia, which had the, the uh, uh, Euphrates running through it, where the nation of Israel, the land of Canaan, has no natural springs, no place like that. It is a desert. And here's why. God fashioned the land and called them and gave them the land of Canaan to cultivate a particular response and a behavior from his people. That response was faith and that behavior was faithfulness. God sent his people to the land of Canaan so that they would trust him and obey him. See, in order for crops to grow in Canaan, it required rain. They didn't have the, the water of the Nile or the Euphrates. They had to trust God to provide the rain. Which then, when you go and read those accounts of them complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt, that's why they wanted to go back. And that's also why when they do get in the land of Canaan, they begin to worship the gods of the pagans. Why? Because they believed those gods produced rain and listen church god does the same thing for us our suffering our challenges our difficulties in this life you know what they're to, to do to drive us to dependence they're to drive us to trust him to obey him 
to follow him. And so God sent them to Canaan so that their struggles would cause them to be dependent upon him. And the same is true for us. Our struggles, our challenges drive us to dependence. And they begin to shape our spiritual lives by revealing our inability to meet our own needs. And Israel in the land of Canaan could not meet their own needs unless God provided rain. And so, next question. Why do most Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah? Very good question. But to begin with, we need to begin with the question of how do we even know that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, we know that Jesus is the Messiah because the Old Testament describes criteria by, in order for us to identify and recognize who the Messiah is. I'm just going to list a few. The Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. Messiah would be a descendant of King David, 2 Samuel 7. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. The Messiah would arrive before the destruction of the second temple, second temple, Daniel 9. The Messiah would present himself by riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9. That is today, Palm Sunday, where Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. And Zechariah 9 tells us that that's exactly what he would do, and that's exactly what he did. Messiah would be tortured and put to death, Psalm 22. The the Messiah's life would match a particular description. In other words, it would include suffering. And he would be silent at his arrest and at his trial. He would, be, he would die. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And he would resurrect. Isaiah 52 talks about all that. And in regard to all of those things, the lineage, the birthplace, the time, the lifestyle, Jesus matches all of those expectations of Scripture. But there's several other factors. In John 4, Jesus himself claimed to be the Messiah. And the way Jesus lived his life was the opposite of what false messiahs did. He performed miracles. He healed things you would expect the Messiah to do. That's exactly what Jesus did. But the most convincing proof is the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection, no other false messiah, no one who claimed to be the Messiah has risen from the grave. In fact, no one else has risen from the grave like Christ. The Jews in Jesus' day rejected him because... They fail, he failed to meet their expectations of what a Messiah should be. You see, by the time of Jesus' day, the whole idea of Messiahship had been politicized. The hope of a Messiah was a political hope, not a spiritual hope. And although Isaiah 53 and although Psalm 22 talk about a suffering servant, talk about a suffering Messiah, the Jews of Jesus' day chose to ignore those prophecies of the Messiah and focus only on the Messiah's victory, which is why they rejected him. But not all Jews rejected him. In fact, all of Jesus' first followers were Jewish. So let's do an easy one. Y'all ready for an easy one? Everybody breathe. What is the role of women in ministry? Now, seriously, this is a hotly debated topic today. And, uh, and this is a question that you guys asked, so I'm going to answer it um, based on my understanding of Scripture. Uh, but, the, but, the, in, in, but here's, what, here's what we need to know before we even dive into this. What is not an issue is that women have always and will continue to play a significant role in the church. Women 
were among the first to, they, they were among the, they were among, they were, excuse me, women were some of Jesus' only followers that remained at his crucifixion. All the disciples, except for John, basically left. They fled. But women were there. Women were the first to see the resurrected Christ. The Apostle Paul held women in high regard. In fact, he addresses several women throughout his epistles as co-laborers because they clearly served the Lord to the benefit of the whole church. Philippians 4.3 says this, Yet, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Colossians 4.15, Paul says this, Give my greeting to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. We know that the writer, the, the Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark, his mother hosted a home in Acts of the local church. That's where they would go to pray. And when, when, when uh, I believe it was Peter and Paul that were, were, or, uh, that were in uh, prison, uh, or James and Peter, they were in prison, and the church is praying. Whose house are they praying in? Mark's mother's house. Our church, listen to this church, Freedom Bible Church, would not, could not be what it is today without the faithful women that serve throughout this church. We wouldn't be who we are today. We wouldn't be where we are today without faithful women children serving in the church so maybe you're wondering what's the issue if god values women and god is and paul talks about the women partnering in ministry then what is the issue well here's what the issue comes down to it boils down to the question can women serve as pastors or elders in the church that's really what the issue boils down to specifically can women oversee and lead the church and can women preach and teach God's word in the local gathering of the church? That's really what it comes down to. And it's not a men versus women issue. It's not a men uh, are better or superior to women issue. It's not a matter of chauvinism or a matter of discrimination or a matter of superiority. It's not a matter of, uh, it's not an issue, it's not even an issue of women leading. It's an issue of how do we interpret the Bible. So let's go straight to God's word and see what it says. First Timothy 3. You, you can turn over there if you want to, but if not, just write it down. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 is what we're going to read from. All right, 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. Paul is writing to Timothy, who was a pastor, an elder at the church. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which that word overseer is the same word as elder. You can interchange it with elder, uh, bishop. You can interchange it with um, overseer. The pastor is that role, the function of that. He desires a noble thing. Therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church? He must not be a recent convert, or he, may, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must 
be well thought of by outsiders and he, and he, so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Now let's go over to 1 Timothy 2. So 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 11, talks about the role of teaching or preaching within the context of the local church. And he says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she must she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So, what does this teach us? First of all, it teaches us that in the non-essentials, we must have what? Y'all are not agreeing right now. <laughs> Liberty. So we can, you can have a complementarian view of Scripture. You can have a egalitarian view of Scripture. I believe in a complementarian view of Scripture, which is what I'm going to describe uh, over the next few minutes. But you can, you can have both, and we can have fellowship and have both. And we're going to talk about how a, 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 what I would call a generous complementarian view would happen within the local church, as opposed to I would not be a strict egalitarian, I mean a, a strict complementarian, and we're going to talk about that. But first of all, we need to realize, before we into doing that, first of all, we need to realize that men and women are created in the image of God. We agree with that? And secondly, we need to agree that men and women are equally are equal in personal dignity. Can I get an amen? Okay, good. We need to meet, we need to agree that men and women should treat one another with kindness, compassion, and love. Good. We're all on the same page. We also need to agree that men and women are both called to local ministry within the church. Yes, good. Secondly, what we need to do is we need to understand what Paul is saying and what he isn't saying. What Paul is saying is that within the church, God has assigned different roles to men and women. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that that order, that the order of creation has universal application both in the family and in the church. Go see Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 23, with the application within the family. God, through the Apostle Paul, is prohibiting women from, from serving in roles of elder or teaching with spiritual authority over men. That's what Paul says in Timothy. But the bottom line is this. Paul, Paul is saying that that is prohibited within the context, the formal context of the congregation. What Paul is not saying, and this is what we need to understand, what he is not saying is that women have no role in ministry in the local church. He's not saying that. He's not saying that women should never teach. He's not saying that women should remain silent in the church. He's not saying that. And we're gonna, I'm going to prove how I, I come to that conclusion in just a moment. But I know oftentimes we use that, that Timothy passage where he says, let the woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Which, by the way, the fact that Paul would say, let the woman learn in that culture, in first century culture, would have been shocking. Because in the first century, ladies, y'all weren't allowed to learn. And Paul is, is elevating womanhood, saying, no, they must learn. But he also elevates it in other ways we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 11. But what he, and, and we're all, some people take that 1 Corinthians, uh, I think, 14 passage and say, tell the women to be quiet. 
out of context and basically say mean that the women should be quiet and cover your heads and all that stuff. Very specific context in the First Corinthians passage that we don't have time to talk about today, but I'd be more than happy to dig into you. Because, and here's what I want you to know. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul encourages women to pray and to prophesy in the gathering of the local church. So within a context like this, Paul encourages women to pray. He encourages women to prophesy. In other words, speak encouragement. Edify the body of Christ. In Colossians 3, Paul encourages and and tells women to lead in singing. So he's not saying that women have no influence within the local church. In fact, women have a lot of influence within the local church. He's not saying that men are superior to women. He is saying that in this one instance of being an elder and teaching within the context of the gathering of the church, that women are prohibited from doing that. So, how are we to interpret what the Bible says about the role of women in the local church? Well, it begins with affirming that God's word is inspired and authoritative. And it also means that we should not place restrictions in the absence of biblical instructions. I think what happens a lot of times is people read those those passages, and they begin to place restrictions where God doesn't place restrictions. They begin to read into it. We don't want to read into it. We want to read the text and do what it says. But it also means that we can't view Scripture in light of the changing culture around us. All right? Don't read into it, but also don't read it in light of culture. So I believe, here's here's what I believe is a complementarian. That 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1, 1 Corinthians 14. Write these down. Go read them for yourself. They make it clear that the Bible reserves the office of elder and pastor specifically for qualified men. Elders are distinctively responsible for overseeing the church. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Titus 1, 7. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. And... Elders are responsible for preaching the word. 1 Timothy 3, 2. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Titus 1, 9. Now, apart from that, apart from the role of elder and, and, and teacher, I believe the Bible explicitly encourages and assumes that women are going to be highly involved within, in ministry of the local church. All right? And I think the problem is we spend so much time focusing on what Scripture prohibits rather than focusing on what Scripture encourages. And the problem stems from, from this idea of trying to protect uh, this, the, the, the male leadership that God established at creation and, and described in Timothy, Titus, and Corinthians. And what we end up doing is limiting women in ministry. And that is the wrong approach. Instead, what we should do is we should see that the church is men and women serving as partners in the gospel, like Paul described. The issue is not the gifts of the issue, and the issue is that men and women should be using their gifts, their spiritual gifts in ministry, while at the same time seeking to, to hold up, uphold the New Testament teaching that lead pastors and elders 
is a role designed for qualified men. So what I want to do, I want to talk just for a few minutes of what that practically could look like at Freedom and should look like at Freedom. Sunday morning worship gathering, where we are now. Every single member, men and women, should be actively participating in the service. Every single person. Every role is open to men and women except except for preaching God's word. Women should, should read scripture, lead worship, assist in baptism, Lord's Supper, pray publicly, speak words of encouragement, give testimony, prophesy. All those things are, are wide open for, for women in ministry. What about teaching environments? Like Bible studies or growth groups. Uh, we just ended a growth group in the house uh, last Sunday. Like, What about those type of environments? Student ministry would be one of those type of environments, which is a teaching environment. So in those environments, I believe that those mixed-gender teaching environments should be overseen by a pastor or an elder, but that pastor or elder should seek out and equip men and women to use their spiritual gifts to help shape, lead, and teach within those ministries. I think our leadership teams, finance, and, and various ministries within the church can and should be led and by both men and women, depending on who's called to that. Those, those are roles that are available for everyone. Men and women can serve as ministers without being elders and pastors. Men and women can serve as deacons or deaconesses. You see that in, in, with Phoebe in Romans 16. Paul, des, uh, Paul, uh, Paul describes her as a deaconess, a servant within the church. What about home groups? Disciple-making relationships. We talk about those a lot. So in the, in, in the context of a, of a uh, men should lead men's groups, women should lead women's groups, but what about mixed groups, mixed gender groups? I think there's co-discipleship there. I think there's no limit to what men and women can do. I think there should be co-laborers, just like Paul talks about, that we, they should operate according to their gifting. Both men and women can serve as group leaders and, and, and in the context of, of men and women groups. I think that's perfectly fine. So the role, just to sum up the role of women in the church. Um, the Bible depicts a vision where men and women labor alongside one another. Where they are co-laborers for the sake of the gospel. In other words, apart from that one role of lead pastor or pastor elder, I believe the Bible explicitly encourages and assumes that women will be involved, heavily involved, in the ministry of the local church. So hopefully we see that God, God does not try to diminish the role of women. He has just established one role that, include, that, is, that is set apart for qualified men. All right, in all things, charity. In the non-essentials, liberty. So, let's do some rapid-fire questions, because I know we're getting long. And, uh, and we've got, so, so just so you guys know, we don't have time today to answer everybody's question, um, uh, the, all the questions you submit, but I did answer everybody's question. And there's a document that you can receive we have an email will go out tomorrow. You can go to our website uh, this afternoon, and you can go and find that document by clicking on the PDF, and I've answered every single one of the questions that were submitted. 
And so you can go and find those. We're not going to have time. So we got a lot of questions about will we know people in heaven? Yes, we will. Um, we can move on. Uh, basically, you, the transfiguration of Jesus, Moses and Elijah were recognized. Uh, guess what? There were no pictures of Moses and Elijah back in the day. And so they, they, they recognize him. Luke, Luke 16, Abraham, Lazarus, and the rich man. Jesus, after his resurrection, was clearly recognized by his disciples. Another question along those lines, what about a child that has been miscarried or, or stillborn? Mark 10, Jesus says, Permit the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. David's, when David's son, young son died, he declared, I cannot go to him, uh, he will not come to me, but I will go to him in 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, which implies that David believed that he would recognize his son in heaven. So, will there be a rapture before the tribulation? No. Next question. <laughs> oh, you want me to talk about it? All right, we might, we'll, we'll see where we get after this one. We might have to end on this one. Um, now, I know that some of you disagree. And that's okay. It's, ordin- it's a secondary issue. It's a non-essential. And so let's talk about why I say no to that question. And here's why. There's, a wide, there, there's really a wide spectrum of beliefs when it comes to eschatology, which is the study of the end times. And, and there are several, several views when it comes to the rapture. Pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, you know, all those different views of the rapture. And the question that really comes from this idea of the pre-trib, pre-tribulation rapture really comes from the most, the dominant view in North America, all right? Which the dominant view in North America is dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. Whew, that's a big seminary <laughs> phrase that I never want to have to repeat again. Um, but what that is, what dispensational pre-trib is, we'll, we'll shorten it to that. Dispensational pre-trib is the dominant teaching in North America, and it refers to the, well, it's simplified. It simply refers to this idea, that the next event in the end times is the rapture of the church, where Jesus is going to descend in the clouds and rapture the church into his presence, but he's not going to come to earth. He's going to come kind of halfway, rapture the church, and then and then people will be left behind, and Jesus is going to remain in heaven with the church and inaugurate the seven years of tribulation, all right? That's where the Antichrist emerges. That's where lots of events centered around Israel begin to happen. And then after that seven-year period, this is the dispensational pre-trib view. After that period, Christ will return again, technically the second time, or maybe the second and the half time, depending on how you do your math. But he will technically return a second time, defeat his enemies, the Battle of Armageddon established the literal thousand-year kingdom. And this is a popular view in North America. But the reality is this is not a popular view in other areas of the world. This is primarily a, a North American view of eschatology. And why do I say that? Because pre, the historical pre-trib view... Was, was found throughout church history. But the dispensational, the one I just described, 
first appeared in the 1700s. Like 1700s. Not 1700 B.C., 1700s. And it picked up steam with a man named John Darby in the 1800s. And became incredibly popular in the 1900s. In 1917, when a man named Charles Schofield, many of you may have his Bible, anybody have a Schofield study Bible? Some of you do. He made this view very, very popular because he put it in his study notes. Now, I want you to know, the study notes of your Bible are not Scripture. I don't care whose study notes they are. We have to evaluate Scripture for ourselves. And so, anyway, and then it became even more popular in the 1990s with the Left Behind series. Okay? Anybody seen the Left Behind series or read the books? That's dispensational pre-trib view. All right? Now, what is my personal conviction? My personal, again, you study, I, I want you to study this for yourself. Don't just take my word on it. Study it. Learn it. Know it. My personal conviction is that Matthew 24 and Mark 13, which is called the Olivet Discourse, that Jesus, where Jesus talked about the end times with his disciples. He refers to both the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and to Jesus's, and then he transitions to the end times when Jesus returns. And I believe that Jesus's second coming is a single event where Jesus will return. And so I do believe in a rapture. Not that I don't believe in one. I just don't believe in one the way the dispensational pre-trib view is. I do believe in a rapture. I believe at the end times, the resurrection of all living believers will occur at the time of Jesus' second coming. And that rapture is preceded by the resurrection of the dead in Christ. They will receive their glorified, resurrected bodies first. You find that in 1 Thessalonians 4. Go and read it. And then those of who remain alive at the time of Christ's second coming will be raptured to meet him in the air. And at that time, Jesus will immediately return with all of his followers, destroy his enemies by speaking the word, fire will fall down, enemies will be destroyed, and at that moment, he will inaugurate the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. I believe that Jesus only returns once at his second coming. That there is no separate, secret, half-return rapture of the church before his second coming. Now, you can agree, disagree with that, and that's okay. I do believe in a rapture, just not the one that the Left Behind series teaches. And here's my reasoning. Because we want to have reasoning, right? If I don't have reasoning, then you should just walk out of here and never listen to another thing I say. Because you want to study Scripture. You want to know it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, Matthew 24, Revelation 19. I'll read those again so you can write them down. Go study for yourself. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, Matthew 24, Revelation 19 are all describing Jesus' second coming. All right? The Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 that Greek word to meet him in the air is used two other times in the Greek New Testament. It's used in Matthew twenty-eight or 25 and Acts 28. 
And both of those instances describe a time of going out to meet a dignitary and then accompany that dignitary to the place from which the people went out. And so the picture that Paul is painting in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the picture of what would, what would occur regularly in the Roman Empire. We've talked about this before. But what would happen in the Roman Empire when an when army would go out, the king would go out, or, or, or the, the soldiers would go out, and they would go to war, and they would, gain, they would win victory in war, and they would return back to Rome. They would camp out a mile away from Rome, a mile or so away. Then they would send a herald, someone to proclaim the good news of victory, into Rome, the citizens of Rome would clean up the city, they'd get all the homeless people off the streets, they'd clean up the city, they'd make things look nice, and then, get this, the citizens of Rome would then travel outside the city to meet the, the, the army as it were coming back into the city, and then they would all come into the city victorious. That is the picture Paul is painting of Jesus' second coming where we, first the dead in Christ, will meet him in the air. Then those who are alive will, will meet him all at the same time, just like the Roman citizens would, and then we would all usher in the new heaven and new earth together. Now that's my view. And I base that view on those passages that I mentioned earlier. But I also base it on Second Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2, which suggests that the assembling to meet him, which is oftentimes talked about as the rapture, is the same day, uh, is the same as the day of the Lord referenced in that same passage. So the assembling to meet him and the day of the Lord are the same according to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2, the best I can read it. So, if Paul, believed in a pre-tribulation rapture, why didn't he say so in 2 Thessalonians 2? Because he doesn't mention it. And when you read Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, where Jesus describes the end times, he makes no mention of the removal of his church before the events of the end, before his second coming. You would think that he would, but he doesn't. So, with that said, I think we're going to wrap up. Um, I know this has been a lot. It's like drinking from a fire hose today. We normally don't do this if you're our guest. We normally teach through books of the Bible, uh, Scripture, uh, teaching. So, um, But again, there are tons and tons and tons of questions that we didn't get to. We didn't have time to get to today. Um, but they're all written out. My answers are all written out. The text, the Bible descriptions, the text are all there for you to go and look at. And they range from everything from can a Christian be cre cremated to what does the Bible say about alcohol to where was Jesus between his ascension and his, where, between his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, I mean, all kinds of things are in there. Uh, I encourage you to go look those up. But here's the most important thing I want to encourage you to do. I want you to read the Bible for yourself. I want you to study Scripture on your own. I want you to take and download this document and go look at those texts, especially the ones where, 
where we disagree and even the ones where we do agree so that you have a better understanding of what you believe. I never want you to take my word for anything. Seriously, never trust a guy with a mic. Look it up for yourself. Study it for yourself. Every time I teach, study it for yourself. Don't just take my word on it. Um, and so that's my, that's my strongest encouragement that we would do that. Um, with that said, I want to pray for us, and we're going we're gonna to head out. Um, normally we close in a song, but we're not going to do that today because we've gone way longer than we normally go. Uh, hopefully this wasn't too much. Hopefully I haven't bored you to death. Hopefully you'll come back next week as we celebrate Easter. It will not be a message as long as this. We will focus on one text, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to teach what it says, and that's what we're going to teach, all right? And then the Sunday after Easter, we're going to start the book of Acts. So here's what you can do. Between now and, and the week after Easter, start reading the book of Acts. Start studying it for yourself so that the things that I teach on Sunday mornings, you'll be like, yeah, I know that already. And, uh, and, and so you don't have to take my word for it. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We know and acknowledge that your word is true, that it is, that it is, it is trustworthy, it is authoritative in our lives. God, we can trust what is written in your word. We may not agree with everything that's written. We may have a hard time with some of the things that are written. We may not be able to grasp and understand everything that is written, God, but we can trust it. We can place our faith in it. We can acknowledge that your word is true. And Father, I, want, I pray that Freedom Bible Church would be a church that is centered on your word. That Freedom Bible Church, that we would be a people that love your word, that study your word, that know your word, and most importantly, we live your word. Father, we pray for this upcoming week that you would open up opportunities for us to make invites to Easter Sunday, to Resurrection Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the foundation of our faith. As Paul said, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. And so, Father, we look forward to next Sunday and celebrating our risen Savior. And, Lord, we pray that you would take the words that we've spoken today and that you would use them for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. To learn more about freedom, join us on our website freedombiblechurch.net.